Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, coverage of the Supreme Court. So we are in the midst of some momentous uh, Supreme Court cases, more to come, and it sort of shined a light on the press corps that covers the court. The court has always seemed to me to be a kind of opaque, mysterious thing. Um, and the coverage sort of reflects that. I mean, there's a sense of like, of like uh, whispering and trying to understand the, sm- the smoke as it rises up and, and trying to read it. And, and you get the sense that we're not maybe getting the whole picture, but maybe we are, I don't know. So I am thrilled to be able to have a chat with Jay Willis, who's the editor-in-chief of Balls and Strikes, which is a site that launched last month. It has support from a nonprofit group called Demand Justice, um, and it promises bullshit-free commentary, which is in quotes, about the legal system. Jay, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, and great. Now I know I can swear. You can swear, yes. (laughs) Um, So I wanted to have this talk because what's going on in the Supreme Court is sort of on a continuum with some other things going on in the country, including you know, what is going on with Trump, how big of a threat is he still, what's going on with um, the kind of militant right, how big of a threat is that still, and what's going on in the Supreme Court. And the, the big question around all this stuff is always like, okay, well, how scared should we be? And I don't, sometimes I don't know the answer to that. And so I thought, uh, I wanted to ask you that, but then I read a piece that you wrote last month about the media's mischaracterization, mischaracterization of the Supreme Court, and I sort of got the answer, but you, tell me, how do you think about how scared should we be about about the, the the court's sort of current stance and and how is that being is that being fairly represented in media? I mean, the shortest answer to the question how scared would should we be is, in my view, very. Um, you have developing sort of on a parallel track with the rightward lurch of Republican politics. I would say over the last forty years, but especially over the last ten has been a concerted effort by conservatives to take over the Supreme Court, to take over the federal judiciary. And that project sort of reached its apex last year with the confirmation of Justice Amy Coney Barrett. So with this six to, six to three conservative supermajority on the court, this is the most conservative court since the Great Depression. It's on the verge of being able to roll back decades of progress and fundamentally reshape significant swaths of not just American law, but like day-to-day American life. Uh, I do not feel that this is being represented accurately in the media, which is sort of mostly wrapping up term recaps with uh, the same way you might wrap up a a spirited baseball game between two teams that tried real hard. Uh, And then you're seeing the same sort of dynamic in some of these term previews, talking about this as if it's just another year of sort of justices parsing through arcane legal problems that uh, that most Americans won't think about, instead of some of the sort of huge issues on the docket and the seismic changes that could be taking place very soon. And, and why is that? Why is there a reluctance in the media that covers this to sort of call it like this? Oh man, uh, how many hours do you have to talk about that? We have 20 uh, minutes. <laughs> oh boy, okay, I'll be short about it then. 
some of it is just the demands of the news cycle. Um, it takes more work to put Supreme Court decisions in their social and historical context than it does to just sort of tally up the votes and crank out a 500-word opinion recap. I guess the example that most comes to mind is this case that was decided last, or excuse me, earlier this year, Bernovich v. DNC, a voting rights case in Arizona. Mm -hmm. In that case, the six conservatives functionally hollowed out Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, following up on the conservative wing's earlier project in Shelby County v. Holder in 2013. But the effect of this ruling is really to greenlight a lot of these Republican voter suppression bills that we're seeing pushed across the country in the wake of the 2020 election. That's really important to understand the implications of Brnovich. Largely lost, however, in sort of the immediate news coverage of the court, which is, again, the type of coverage to which, like, that's all most Americans see, right? There's also an element of self-preservation in this coverage. If you're paid, if you're paid well to write about the court, it really behooves you to sort of talk about counterintuitive trends, like, oh, maybe the court isn't as, uh, isn't quite as conservative as we thought it would be. There's a whole round of headlines uh, that I, I go through in this essay that you're referencing. One of the headlines from last term was, America's Supreme Court is less, side one, is less one-sided than liberals feared. That was a headline in The Economist that came down a week, I believe, before the court's term actually ended. Yeah. But if you're a, if you're a writer, I mean, you get it, right? If you're a writer, it's not really fun to write, oh, well, the conservatives dunked all over the liberals again. And if you're an editor, it's not that interesting to edit that story. It's yeah. sort of the same version that we spent years getting this, oh, Trump is striking a new tone. He's becoming more presidential every time he manages a complete sentence. That same reason is why we get John Roberts, our centrist king, whenever he comes down somewhere <laughs> on Sam Alito's left. Yeah. And is that just because of a kind of institutionalist tendency among these reporters that they just they they can't sort of, uh, they, you know, it's sort of in their interest to sort of like say, I mean, in, in the um, you wrote a piece when you launched the site um, and then you you quoted there was a line here in which you quoted Noah Feldman, mm, um, your friend and mine. Yeah. Um, and he was talking. Let me find it here. I'm sorry. Yeah, here we go. He was talking about Barrett, Amy Coney Barrett, and and she had been a former co-clerk of his, right? Um, and he's going to be, he said, he wrote, I'm going to be confident that Barrett is going to be a good justice, maybe even a great one, even if I disagree with her. I mean, all of this, like, it reminds me of the kind of like um, game of access, right? Where you have political reporters uh, being soft on their sources to sort of, make sure they get the next next scoop. What I don't understand about this is, is there any evidence that that makes any difference? And like, I mean, is, is some Supreme Court reporter going to get something more because they were soft on these justices? I mean, I think you're certainly right that access is a significant, significant factor here. That's true for professors like Feldman, who have to send, who want to send students to Supreme Court clerkships. But it's also true for the journalists who, in addition to their day-to-day -day coverage, they've got to think about access for books, for long-form reporting. And it's going to be pretty tough to write 
gossipy bestseller about the court if half the justices won't talk to you. Uh, so I do think that plays a part. But also, you got to look at the people who do Supreme Court reporting. Most of them are white guys, older, well-off. Most of them, many of them, if not most of them, are lawyers who have been on the beat for years. What the court does to them is, it might be interesting, right? But it doesn't necessarily materially affect their lives. And I'll give you an example. I was listening to a Supreme Court reporter the other day give a term preview in which he described this criminal law case that the court heard on its first day, Wooden versus United States, as boring, not the world's most exciting case, he called it. Which, like, sure, that might be the case for, a, again, a well-compensated Supreme Court reporter. But Josie Duffy Rice, she wrote about this case for Balls and Strikes, ballsandstrikes.org, great website, you should check it out. This case isn't boring for William Wooden, right, for whom the stakes are literally an extra decade in prison, depending on what the justices decide. And since his case isn't just about him, this case isn't boring to the untold number of criminal defendants whose lives the result in this case could shape. Criminal law cases don't really affect reporters, so they'll never get as much attention. But I think what that just shows is that who's doing the reporting matters, yeah. and so much of Supreme Court coverage is filtered through people who just aren't affected by its work. Yeah, I mean, this is the bigger problem that we have with coverage of legislation, um, coverage of, I mean, any anything that worms its way through the D.C. sort of legal policy process. I mean, ultimately, it does affect people. Um, it reminds me even a little bit of the sort of coverage of the climate crisis, where people write about this as if it's like, oh, there's a policy discussion about, you know, whether we should have this number of emissions or that, and this lobby is lining up on this side, and that lobby is lining up on that side. Meantime, there's a lot of people dying around the world because of this stuff. Uh, it's part of, it's sort of part of the same continuum in my mind. Yeah, and I would return there to, again, the, the point we're at in the court's history and its development. The reputation of the court has always been that it's sort of above, above politics, that presidents and lawmakers, they do politics, but judges and justices, they do law. And we're seeing that change a little bit lately in public polling. People are understanding that this iteration of the court is different. Yeah. But this sort of neutral, agnostic, detached, both sides coverage, that plays a big role here. It's not just that it's lazy, it's that it really sort of actively carries water for an ideological movement that has been working to capture the court and has captured the court and depends for its success on sort of the continued public acceptance of the notion that the court is above politics. Yeah. You referenced this piece that ran in the Times that talked about the um, this public opinion polling of, of trust in the court, which is declining. Um, and I was, it, it, it interested me because I did wonder how much, how much the sort of justices themselves are tuned into this. Do you know? Do you know if this is something that they monitor and care a lot about? I don't personally know. I mean, Clarence Thomas hasn't returned my texts in years. Uh, I think whether they, you know, quote unquote, care about their approval ratings is sort of the wrong question because. Well, what we're really talking about here is their legitimacy. Like they depend on public acceptance of what they're doing. 
um, for, for what they say to have any meaningful impact. And so in my view, when you see justices like Clarence Thomas, Amy Coney Barrett, Samuel Alito, giving speeches sort of decrying the media for misrepresenting the court or covering the court in their view incorrectly, I don't think they're really sad about what the public thinks. Like they don't care. They, they're not sub, they're, they have life tenure. They're good. They're worried about is that the public might not take seriously the rulings that they're about to hand down or, and, or I guess that public reaction to their rulings will be so negative that there will be enough pressure to finally force Democrats to take something like Supreme Court reform and expansion seriously. Well, that's why I was curious about it. It it wasn't, it wasn't about like, does it make them feel bad that people don't like them? It sort of gets to the question of like, you know, when there's hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of people protesting out, out of the Supreme, outside the Supreme Court building, does that make a difference? (sighs) I think maybe. Um, I think for certain justices more than others, uh, John Roberts has cultivated this perception over the years as an institutionalist who cares about how the public perceives the court. Now, in my view, he cares more about the appearance and moving a little more slowly than some of his more conservative colleagues. But, you know, that's a podcast for another day. On the other hand, you have justices like Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, who have plainly never given a shit about what the public thinks and sort of wear that as a badge of honor. But in my view, the way to determine whether or not it matters is to look at the rulings, to look at what's actually happening for people on the ground, how the Supreme Court's work is affecting their lives. And a a reluctant vote or a, a cautious vote to overturn Roe versus Wade, for example, is still a vote to overturn Roe versus Wade. And yeah. I'm, I'm not much more interested in the nuance beyond that. Yeah. So we began by talking about <clears throat> how, how scared we should be. You know, you highlighted voting rights. You just talked about <clears throat> abortion rights. Um, what, else, what else is on your radar that you're most sort of focused on right now? I would look at gun rights. There's the first big Second Amendment case, I think in a decade, that's going to come up before the court this year, uh, New York Pistol and Rifle Association v. Bruin. What the petitioners are asking for here is a, they are challenging New York's New York State's license requirement for carrying a gun outside the home, which is objectively an extremist, wildly out of touch position. When I was 16, right, I had to get a food handler's permit to work at the grocery store by my house. The, the petitioners here are asking for more government oversight of that than of just like people who want to carry a gun on the street. Um, but in addition to sort of those big hot button issues, the court's increased use of the shadow docket almost has to be considered its own section of cases, issues, matters to watch, Mm. even if you can't necessarily be more specific at this time. The court has been treating the emergency docket uh, like the merits docket, even though the emergency docket, you know, doesn't have as much briefing, doesn't have oral argument. It's not only making these 
decisions that shift the law, in some cases drastically to the right, but it's doing so really quickly and sometimes literally in opinions that come down in the middle of the night. You can only do so much predicting about what the court will do on the shadow docket just because of its emergency nature. Um, but that's just something that you're going to have to keep an eye on as well. You know, you you talked about the need for people to be writing about the effect of this of these cases, because um, that's where the story really is. Is there an argument for just if you're a big news organization, like reallocating your resources and not having a dedicated Supreme Court reporter, just having reporters write about the effect of what the Supreme Court does? I mean, as someone who writes about the Supreme Court, I'm a little reluctant to encourage news organizations to not hire people <laughs> to write about the court. Um, but I mean, yeah, I do think you're, you're onto something there. Uh, so much of legal reporting, the audience, the implicit audience is lawyers and constitutional law professors. It focuses on details and doctrine, legalese, really sort of missing the forest for the jargon. Like law is a tool for distributing political power. The only difference between this and like a presidential election or a Senate vote is that the people casting the ballots, they wear robes and they have life tenure. And traditionally, one of the problems with Supreme Court reporting is that not very many people could do it. There's only about two dozen journalists who have what's called a hard pass that allows them to attend oral arguments in person. Again, not during the pandemic. But with live audio, anyone can cover the court. They can listen to it live and tweet about it, uh, comment about it, write, write it up afterwards. So you're really seeing coverage democratized. Now there's no guarantee that live audio will continue after COVID. And of course, there's no cameras in the courtroom, so hard pass holders continue to be the only people who can watch. But I do think the sort of industry necessity to have somebody on the ground, in the courtroom, writing up the opinion afterward, uh, I do think that has decreased in importance. How's, um, how's the response to balls and strikes been so far? Really positive. I think that there has been an understanding that a lot of legal journalism is broken, that it's not covering the things that matter most, again, to people who are not constitutional law professors. And I think there's been a desire for an outlet that covers law the way that real people experience it day to day. I'm really proud of sort of the roster of contributors that we've been able to put together. Uh, we're also looking to hire a staff writer to cover some of the more day-to-day -day issues around not just Supreme Court opinions and appeals court opinions, but judicial nominations and sort of these broader legal cultural stories. Uh, so this, I've been really excited at public response to the rollout, but we've also got a lot more in the hopper, so to speak. Well, Jay Willis, I wish you all the, all the best luck. I appreciate you having me on. Thanks again. Thanks for coming on. Um, you can read CJR's ongoing coverage of the court at cjr.org.
on our daily email newsletter, The Media Today, and on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. See you next time.